You may stay seated as I read Zechariah chapter 8. And the word of the Lord of hosts came saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I am jealous for her with great wrath. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city. And the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain, thus says the Lord of hosts. Old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with his staff in hand because of great age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, if it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God, in faithfulness and in righteousness. Thus says the Lord of hosts, let your hands be strong, you who in these days have been hearing these words from the mouth of the prophets, who were present on the day that the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid, and that the temple might be built." For before those days, there was no wage for man or any wage for beast. Neither was there any safety from the foe for him who went out or came in. For I set every man against his neighbor. But now I will not deal with the remnant of this people as in the former days, declares the Lord of hosts. For there shall be a sowing of peace. The vine shall give its fruit, and the ground shall give its produce, and the heaven shall give their dew, and I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. And as you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so will I save you, and you shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong, for thus says the Lord of hosts, As I purposed to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, and I did not relent, says the Lord of hosts. So again, I, so again, have I purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Fear not. These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true. And make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. And love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. The, and the word of the Lord of hosts came to me saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth month, and the fast of the fifth, and the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth, shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feast. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. Thus says the Lord of hosts, people shall yet come, 
even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts in those days, ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Let me try that again. Thank you, Anna. Good morning, everybody. How are y'all doing? Well, as you just uh, heard, we are in a series on Zach- in Zechariah, the book of Zechariah. It's called Rebuilt Hearts, Restored Hopes. And uh, that's where we've been uh, the last several months. And this morning, we're in chapter 8 of Zechariah. And as we begin... Um, it reminded me, this section in, in uh, Zechariah 8 reminded me of something my wife told me uh, a long time ago when we first met. She said when she was growing up, one of the last things her parents would tell her right before she went somewhere was, and you guys fill in the blank, what did your parents tell you right before you went somewhere? Uh, she said this, she said, remember who, her parents told her, remember who you are. They'd say, you are a Waters. Now, that that was Anna's maiden name before she married me. But the idea that her parents were uh, sharing was that when you go to a party uh, or go to school or a friend's house, uh, remember that you're a Waters. Remember who you are so that what you do there won't reflect poorly back on us. That's what they were saying, right? You know, we don't want you in jail because it might reflect poorly back on us or your parents. Because regardless of what you do, what others see you do, it will reflect back on them. And that's what their parents were trying to tell them. And God is doing something similarly this morning for Israel uh, in this morning's text in Zechariah chapter 8, but it has a slight twist on it. So he's showing them their felled past So there's kind of a a flashback moment at the beginning. And he's saying to them, not so much remember who you are, like don't make me look bad. He's saying to them, remember who I am. He's saying, remember my faithfulness towards you when you didn't deserve it all of your life, especially in the exile. And as you remember that, as you remember who I am, as you remember my love, my power, my control over the nations, um, reflect back what you see in me. So last week, uh, well, not last week, several sermons ago in chapter 7 of Zechariah, God was saying specifically, remember my love, remember my kindness, now reflect that to others. And as we get down to the end of chapter 8, he's saying, remember my love, remember my kindness, remember my truth, now reflect that back to others. So they can see me rightly. So they can enjoy me rightly. And in that regards, you'll be like a big billboard on the side of the road or your favorite commercial that you see on TV. And as they look at that billboard, which is your life, they will see God. 
as they look at that commercial, which is your life, they will see God in all of his glory, in all of his beauty, in all of his faithfulness. So out the gate, we are told, remember whose we are. We are Jesus. He is faithful to us. Now be faithful to others. So the title of my sermon this morning is Faithfully Displaying our faithful God, faithfully displaying our faithful God. And thank you, Anna, for reading that huge chunk of scripture, 23 verses. She, she did that on the fly. You know, somebody who was supposed to read this morning couldn't, and she did it. That, those are some hard texts to read, so thank you. Um, if you want a copy of the notes, uh, they're on the background table, and hopefully we'll have the points on the screen. And as we begin, let's just pray quickly. Lord God, I pray in the time that we have in your word, I pray that you would you would speak. And Lord, we trust as we read your word, uh, as we proclaim it, Lord, you are speaking by your spirit. And we pray that you would open up our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word. We pray that you would pierce us to the heart. And uh, Lord, that you would transform us by your love and power. And it would be all for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. So it's been like three weeks since we've been in Zechariah, So I need to catch us up to speed a little bit. Uh, Israel's exiled for how many years? You guys remember? 70 years in Babylon, right? Yet in God's mercy, he brought them back through the hand of which king? You guys remember? Ruler Cyrus the Great. But because of the many pressures in Jerusalem at that time, when they got back into the land, there was outside enemies like the Samaritans. There were economic difficulty, internal disagreements within the community there, like people in church fight sometimes, you know what I'm saying? Like that's what was happening on the ground in Jerusalem and personal idolatries, like people wanted to build up their own houses, like their own physical houses and put all the nice pretty things from Hobby Lobby in it and they could care less about what was going on uh, at the temple that was supposed to be being rebuilt. Uh, well, the, the, the building project for the temple began to grind to a halt during that time <clears throat> until about 18 uh, years later, and prophets like Haggai and Zechariah, Zechariah, who we're talking about in this book, they begin to call the people to repentance and to return specifically, very narrowly, obedience in regards to building the temple they had left in shambles because God was coming to dwell in all of his glory and power in that particular building. And uh, after Zechariah gave his initial sermon in chapter one of this book that we're reading through, and Zechariah had eight wild visions, like crazy dreams, that he communicated to the people of God in chapter two through six, it seems like all the returned exiles at that time, they repented. They were like, hey, we're wrong. God's right. We want to follow him. And by the time we reach chapter seven, verse one, in our, our text this close to this morning, because we're in chapter eight, seven one has a time stamp on it. It tells like when it happened, in what month, in what year. And according to that time stamp, it's like three years later from the initial uh, return and then the 18 years of not doing what God told them. And three years later, after those initial calls to repentance through Zechariah's first sermons in 520 uh, uh, AD. And by that time in Israel's history, the people are back in the land and it seems like they're hard at work. They're doing what they're supposed to. They're building the temple. And yet Zechariah believes that they still stand in need, ultimately God does, of some reminders. 
yeah, and some further repentance. Does that sound like the Christian life? You guys ever need some reminders? You know, you're like, I'm, I'm doing what God's called me to, but I need a reminder. Or I've been repentant, but I need a fresh encounter with God. I need a reminder of what he's calling me to. And that's what the people are getting this morning. And it's important to realize that chapter seven and eight are like companion texts, okay? So, uh, Three sermons ago or three weeks ago, Eric preached chapter seven uh, of Zechariah. He did a wonderful job. And I hope you remember all of it so I don't have to remind you of what it was. You guys remember all of it? Eric, you did a great job, but I'm gonna just give a quick uh, review. So in chapter seven, really important because they're companion texts. Um, God reminds his people of their ongoing need for repentance and mercy by highlighting their failure in the past and in the exile. So chapter seven, if you wanna catch up with me, chapter seven, verse one through seven, summary, God tells them there's 70 years of fasting in Babylonian exile. It was great, no. He says it was a waste of time because it was just mere ritual. It was self-focused. It was not Godward focused. He says it like this in the text. When you fasted, was it for me that you fasted? And what was the answer to that? Rhetorical. No, it wasn't. It was for yourselves. The people wanted a physical blessing, but they didn't want God himself. So the ritual was empty, right? Second, in that text in chapter 7, 8 through 14, the second half, he says, you fell to love me because you fell to love others in your life. People are like, I don't get how that works. Well, we've been reading 1 John, right? As a, in the church, as our reading plan, and that's chock full of this concept. God is love, right? And you can't say that you love God and then fail to love those made in his image. And in Zechariah 8, 14, God says it like this. You should have listened to me over and over through the prophets and through my word, and this is what you should have done. You should have rendered true judgments. You should have shown kindness. You should have shown mercy to one another. You should have not oppressed the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, the poor, because I care about those people. And what God was doing was he was reminding them that failing to listen to him had resulted them, resulted in them failing to love others. And that's why they got carried off to exile in the first place. And so chapter seven of Zechariah ends with this tragic flashback of God's people facing his anger, being scattered to the four corners of the world and Jerusalem being left desolate. And then Eric ended his sermon, <laughs> right? And everybody's like, that's dark, that's bleak. Where is my American fairy tale happy ever after? It's coming, okay. Thanks, I get to preach the chapter. I appreciate it, chapter eight, right? So what happens? That sober cliffhanging message that our souls need in chapter seven, that we need to take God seriously. We need to listen to his word. We need to constantly by his spirit be repenting and turning towards him. And the result is that we will turn to our fellow man in love. We need that message. And then chapter eight, my verses this morning, one through 23, it's a totally different feel. Chapter seven was serious, sobering, dark, and full of judgment and warning. In chapter eight, 23 verses, out of those 23 verses, 15 times, count it. I was highlighting it when I was studying through my Bible. 15 times God is reminding his people 
I've spoken. I've promised you something. And it's not because we're so great and so good and so well-behaved and got our acts together and we deserve it. It's because God is so gracious and he's telling them and he's ultimately telling us, I've got these promises that I'm giving you that won't be fulfilled fully until the future. And they actually sound like they're too good to be true, but you're going to have to stake your life and bank your life on these promises again and again. You're going to be working hard. You're going to be doing your thing. You're going to be trying to live for me. And you're going to be thinking, I'm not going to come through. But you're going to have to stake your life on these promises. And chapter 8 is like the sun coming up after a long night of bad dreams and despair and discouragement. It's like a message full of hope and huge and awesome, gracious promises from God. And that's what we see this morning. God wants them to know if he said it, it's as good as being done. 15 times he gives them promises in this chapter. So what types of things is God promising them? Well, I could boil it all down to the fact that God is promising them future restoration and renewal. That's what he's doing in their souls and in that land. But I could also summarize it as this. Many people along the way have summarized it like this. God is promising them his restored presence with his restored people in his restored place. And I don't want you to think of Jerusalem in 520 BC, I want you to think down the line of history, progressive revelation, Christ coming in the incarnation, doing the work he did alone could do to defeat sin and death. And then the future, when Jesus comes back, I want you to think like that and think this. He is promising them his restored presence with his restored people in his restored place. See, on this side of the New Testament, we know these promises that we read in Zechariah 8 are only going to be partially fulfilled along the way in Israel's history. They won't find their fullest fulfillment until Jesus comes back at his second coming. So if I could summarize what chapter eight is, I'd say it's God driving, okay? You're on a long journey. I know my friend's visiting uh, today from Florida. They, they travel and they travel along the U.S. lately. And God's on a journey right here. He's got his children in the back. He's told them they're heading to grandma's, grandma's house. You kids like grandma's house? Most of you guys do? Yeah, but they're head, he's heading from grandma's house from Piedmont and grandma lives in California, okay? And the kids love grandma's but they can't fathom how long it will take to get from Piedmont, South Carolina in a car to California. They can't wait to spend time with grandma. They can't wait to tell stories with grandma, laugh with grandma, enjoy grandma's cookies. But driving for hours and hours and days for days past the same telephone pole, doesn't it look like that? <laughs> the same gas station, did we just stop here? Gives the children a bad case of the you say it with me, kids. Are we there yet? And that's what God's people have been saying for a millennium, you know? Are we there yet? Every time the kids are asking, are we there yet? In chapter eight, God says, I promised you we'd get there. <laughs> it's just in my time. You're like, that same gas station, that same bad fast food. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
He says, I promised. Kids, you can trust me. I'm faithful. I'll do what I say. I'll get you to grandma's. And there's a way better place that we're going than grandma's, guys. We're going to our heavenly home. We'll see our king, our savior face to face. So the point in chapter eight and chapter seven is live like you believe you're going to grandma's house. I don't care if it takes forever. God said it, right? Draw her that picture in the back seat. Sing hopefully in the car, hopefully not over the river and through the woods and grandmother's house we go. And don't kill your brothers and sisters because they took your toy. Kill them with kindness. Kill the people of God with kindness. Okay, that's bad. Okay, but that's what the message is. Love the people of God. Love the truth. Be different than this world. Okay, I basically summarize the whole chapter eight and we can be done. Okay, but I'm gonna try to flesh that out a little bit. So first point. A faithful God transforms his failed followers, verse one through eight. So chapter seven, like I told you, sets us up with a horrible story of God's failed people during exile, 70 years, remember? And how they deserve every bit of the discipline they faced. And think about that. Because God is so holy and so just and so righteous and so beautiful, like we deserve so much hell, like don't we? Like we deserve bad things. We deserve broken lives. We deserve God's judgment forever. But then the hope comes in chapter eight. It opens and says, I'm jealous for her with great jealousy. He's talking about his people. I am jealous for her with great wrath. Really that great wrath word, not to minimize God's wrath, but that could be better translated passion. There's a little mini chiasm in that one verse. And basically what God is saying is, I've coveted myself to my people. I'm like this awesome husband. They are this harlot of a wife. And I love my people, even though they don't deserve it. And I'm not going to sit by as they languish away. And as they pursue other idols and other lovers, I love my people. I'm going to pursue them. I'm going to pursue their hearts. I'm going to pursue them until they love me most. And it's displayed in their lives if they, as they love others well. This is called grace. Do you guys know that word? Grace is staggering always. If you're not staggered by grace this morning and anything good that God's done for you or is doing in your life, specifically spiritually, to redeem you and rescue you and conform you into his image, if you are not staggered by grace, it's because you don't understand how sinful you are. And you don't understand how holy God is. Because if you did, you would look at this and when God says, I'm jealous for them. I love them with everlasting love. I'm going to work in them. You'd be like, whoa, man, God, you're too good for me. I don't, in, I don't deserve that, right? And what God does in this moment to undeserving people right out the gate is he gives them several promises. And he does that, like I said, there's like close to 15 through this text. Some of them are overlapped. But the first promise here is verse three. He says, I've returned to you. And he's talking about, he's referring to their repentance. And he's saying, I've come back. My presence has come among you. But then he says this, I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And he's, it's a reference to when the temple gets done, when they finish it, he's going to drop his presence on the temple and all of his glory. And he's going to show them his glory. That is, he will dwell by his spirit there. Second promise, and this is really the crux of my point, this first point, verse three, he says, Jerusalem shall be called a faithful city. You guys see that there? Wait a minute. 
God's people at this moment in history are well known for a few things, but it's not faithfulness. It's not. It's unfaithfulness to God. But what God is saying is, all of that's about to change. You are going to be known for doing what I've called you to do. I'm going to transform you. Third promise, verses 4 through 5, Jerusalem is going to experience peace and prosperity. I'm talking about like the actual city, right? It says many of the older Israelites, you would know this if you studied the the background a little bit, but they couldn't make the three-month trip home to Jerusalem from Babylon after the exile was over. But Jesus is, or God is saying that one day, one day is coming when both older and younger Israelites will fill the streets. And when that new age dawns, instead of being marked out by sorrow and the smallness that accompanies war and poverty, it will be marked out by the town squares of Jerusalem being filled with both old and young and playing in the streets. That's what he says. So in the face of these promises of uh, God's returned presence, the transformation that he brings, and coming prosperity and peace. God knows this. Verse 6, if you look at it, you're like, what does that mean in the English? Like, I read this a couple of times, and I was like, what does that actually mean? What is God saying here in Zechariah 8, verse 6? He knows the people are going to say, all that sounds too good to be true. Got any pessimists in, in the room right now? You know, you're like, you, you call yourself realist, right? <laughs> I got gotcha. you. I got gotcha. you. Any pessimists, all of that sounds too good to be true. God, your restored presence, your transformation, like I feel so unfaithful, like a coming prosperity and peace. And God is basically saying, this sounds too marvelous and too impossible to you, but I will accomplish it. I am faithful. Dad's going to get us to grandma's. It's like when my friend Reggie came to cut down my 40-foot pine trees that were dropping pine straw in my yard, and uh, they were getting eat up by bugs, and they were going to fall on us. Uh, Reggie came over, and he had a narrow strip of my backyard to drop those 40-foot pines in because I got a very small backyard. Too far to the left uh, would crush my deck. Too far to the right, it would crush my neighbor's chain-link fence. Too far forward, like the height was too long or longer than we anticipated, it would crush his truck. And so what he did was he came in there. I never met him before in my life. I just got him recommended. He picked up a twig that was about this tall, a twig off one of those pine trees and never met the dude in my life. And he takes his eye and he goes, yep, that's about right. It's going to fall right there. And he takes the twig and walks it over in my yard and sticks it in the ground. And uh, I'm like, you're going to drop that tree right there and you're going to miss my garage that's a few feet over? I'm like, how did he get that out of that? (laughs) He said, oh, I'm so confident in it. I'm going to take my truck and I'm going to back it up all the way to that twig and put it right there, the tailgate right there. And I was like, okay, you can do whatever you want to do. And this is what I was thinking in that moment. That's too marvelous of an accomplishment There's no way I'm just waiting for that 40-foot pine tree that's huge to fall through the ceiling of his truck. (laughs) He cuts it, it falls, it lands within inches of his truck, it lands within inches of my deck, inches of the neighbor's uh, fence. And this is kind of what God's saying. 
I'm telling you all these things, all these good promises that will come in my timing. And you're looking at it, Israel, and you're saying, too marvelous. There's no way. There is a faith issue. God's remnant doesn't actually believe his word will come to pass. And just because we are having a hard time believing doesn't mean God's not going to be able to do it. And basically what God is saying is, your inability to imagine doesn't limit my ability to accomplish. You need to open your mind. You need to get a Godward perspective. You need to remember, ultimately, I'm just going to take the whole Bible right now as I'm thinking and say, we need to remember that God can bring life from the dead still. Like God still can move mountains. God can still do the impossible and the marvelous. He can save the worst of sinners, verse 7. He can bring all the exiles home. He can transform the failed and broken, and he will sanctify his people, right? God says in verse 8, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. You're like, how in the world do people broken like us get to live faithfully and righteously? Yet not I, but through Christ in me. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. See, his faithfulness will create, sustain, empower our faithfulness. And that's really is a nod to the, the new covenant, this promise. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection and outpoured spirit, God's people will be transformed because God will come to live within his people. 1 Thessalonians 5.24 puts it in a nutshell summary. I love it. He says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful and he will surely do it. Second point, faithful God calls his followers to a fourfold faithfulness. Got to do that because I'm a preacher, there's your alliteration, okay? Eight, nine through 19. So as God is making future promises to those returned exiles, they're laboring to build the temple and they will finish it shortly thereafter, several years later. And he knows they're probably getting tired. And I got a question. Are you getting tired in the mission of God this morning? Ours, as we've reminded you very often, is not to build a church building or a temple, right? What is our mission Broadly, it is to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength in everything we do and love our neighbors as ourselves. Narrowly in the understanding of the Great Commission is to make disciples. That happens in your family. It happens at your work. It happens among strangers. That is our calling. And so he, to their mission, he calls them to fourfold faithfulness. And I'm gonna list those very quickly and then walk through those. He calls them to keep working, he calls them to stop worrying. He calls them to show a blessed living lifestyle to others and to love uh, others, sorry, and to love to live an others blessed lifestyle, okay? So first he calls them to keep working. We see that in verse nine and verse 14 of chapter eight. He literally says, let your hands be strong. Don't have weak hands. Don't throw in the towel. Don't give up like a runner whose energy is starting to flag as they get closer to the finish line. And guys, we are getting closer to the finish line. Regardless of if you're 60 or if you're 20, we're getting closer. The hills are looking bigger and we don't feel like we have enough in the tank to finish and we don't, but he does. He's our strength. And he wants them not to get lazy or slow down. He wants them to complete the task. He wants them to finish the mission. He, don't want, he doesn't want them to turn back. And he's saying that to us, like, what is our mission? 
Like I think most of us are distracted from the actual mission. And God is saying, not only don't be distracted, put your hands to the plow and don't look back. Be my disciple, take my gospel forward, love others well. Second, he's calling them to stop worrying or not to fear. And this is a big one for me. He says that in 8, verse 13 and verse 15. He knows for God's people that as the foundation of the temple was laid even before that, that he says in verse 10 that there was no money to pay the workers, no safety from enemies like the Samaritans, and there was disunity among Israel, the people of Israel, as that work project began. He knows that, and the people know that. And when you have things like that in your circumstances, difficulties, trials, struggles, you know what you want to do? You want to stop working because of fear. You fear what's going to happen to you, what's going to be committed against you. You, you fear just life. And what he's saying in, in this process is don't fear. God is now promising in the future that he will deal with them differently. There will be a reversal, verse 11. He's going to give them peace. He's going to remove the curses they experienced for breaking the covenant. The heavens will open up and the rain in the land will once again produce a harvest. Verse 14, and all the judgment that they faced in the past because of their sin is going to be replaced with God doing good to them. And this is what Christ did for us. He fulfilled the conditions of the covenant. He swallowed up the curse that we deserved for our disobedience. And he gives us abundant life and peace in himself even when that means bad circumstances for us, right? We get his abundant life and peace even when we struggle with bad and difficult circumstances as we live out the mission that he's called us to, right? The mission's not easy, right? But the question for Israel is the same for us. Here's the question. Will we live right now in the presence of discomfort and difficulty, in the presence of a bad crop for their context, in the presence of a nation still, or the nation still bad-mouthing us like they were experiencing their time, will we live in that condition or those circumstances like we already possess Jesus' peace and, and prosperity? I'm talking about true prosperity spiritually. Will we live like we already have experienced his salvation? Because when we have Jesus and we know the fullness of what's coming at his second coming, we don't have to be afraid our faithful father will get us to grandma's, right? And that's a good word for me. I mean, I don't know about you, this season of time, this, this season in our, in our calendar year, it's dark. It's even extra dark at Halloween as we've been talking. These shootings, that's a dark thing. Think about Jen and Pete who are doing ministry right now and they say this October season is so spiritually dark because people are inviting evil spirits to come into these little girls and they're sending them door to door. They're temple workers and it's such a dark season. And whatever you're facing right now, we can trust that because Christ is with us, his presence is with us, we can keep on working and we don't have to fear whatever comes into our life. And in verse 13, God tells them that the nations that once cursed them will be drawn to God's people because God will use his people to bless the nations, which is just a turn. It's crazy. Like Christianity, what we normally do and we know we're like, we're going to hole up in our house, right? We don't want to be near any of those non-believers. They're like corrupting us, right? And part of that's true, right? 
but we miss out that that's not the design for God's people. God comes in, he forgives us, he saves us, and then he sends us out. Like he wants us to be in the world, but not of the world, but he's sending us out in his love and in his power. And that's what that text is saying. God is saying, I'm gonna use you to bless the nations, just like he promised all the way back in Genesis 12, 12 uh, 2 through 3. He said, I will bless you and make my name great so that you will be a blessing and in all of in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. But the point is that blessing to the nations won't happen until God's people can learn to live as a blessing. And that's what God called us to do and came to do. Other two points within that is live others blessed, blessing lifestyle. God basically says this design for you, your call is gonna affect your everyday life the way you talk to others, the way you engage and engage with others, the way you plan out your future. In verse 16 of eight, he says, these are the things that you shall do. You guys see that in verse 16? What shall they do? Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts. So God is calling his people not to lie. You say, no biggie, that's easy. I don't really think it is that easy. If you want to hide your sin, God's saying, don't lie. If you're feeling justified, don't lie. If you want to protect yourself and get what you want, don't lie. We are to speak the truth about life, always. And the truth about ourselves, always. And the truth about what God says, always. God's calling us to speak truth. But he's also calling his people here in the moment to pursue justice. And people, there's... (laughs) Pursuing justice got a bad name, got a bad rap over COVID, right? People were like, hey, if you're pursuing justice and doing what's right towards people, you know, you're woke, you know, or you're, you're pursuing a social gospel. But there, there are those dangers, but pursuing justice was God's idea, right, for his people. And the gates were the place in the city where judicial functions were carried out. Think of our courts or the judicial system and work your way down. Schools, businesses, families, and churches. God is saying, I want my people involved there and I want their righteous living and their desires for my truth to infect everything that's going on there. I want justice to reign. So do what's right. Live with other people in peace. Pursue reconciliation. Forgive in the church and in your families. Make for peace, not disunity. And that's only gonna come by pursuing God's truth. And I could go on and on and on. And I'll just say this part for the third part. It's not that God just wants us to pursue those things, truth and making peace and all that stuff. He wants us to love it. And there's a verse right there at the end that's so cool in this section where God says, pursue those things, truth and peace, because I hate the opposite of that. God's saying, I love truth. I love peace. And what I want you to do is I want you to love it as well. Now I'm gonna have to skip a little section, but um, point three and finally it says, A faithful God draws new followers through the faithful living of his people. A faithful God draws new followers through the faithful living of his people. Final point. So God gives one more promise in verse 20 as we're closing out this section. When God faithfully lives through his people, what happens? Anybody know? 
just the end section on chapter eight. You just give it a little glance. You tell me what happens when God faithfully lives through his people. When Christ in us produces his righteousness, his concern, his joy, his peace, his labors through us, his truth, what happens? Anybody know? What? It draws outsiders. People take notice, right? God's people lean into God his never stopping, failing love, his unlimited power, and they become like a magnet. You guys like magnets? I love them. I'm nerdy from being a little kid. I love to put like nails on a glass table and then take a magnet and get really close, not too close, get really close and watch them. You guys remember that? You guys still do that? I still like to do that. That's the idea here. Just think of when you came to know the Lord. Okay, if you're a Christian here, think about when you came in love of the Lord. Most of us, this is how it happened, I think. And you raise your hand as I'm saying it, if this applies to you. You saw somebody who was a Christian and they looked different than the world around you. They're like, something's different about them. Whether it was a peace that they had, a joy that they had, a respect that they gave, they, were, they had integrity at work. What is that? Like they did their job before the Lord and they loved it. They weren't like, I can't wait to get done and hit that time clock and go home and have a beer. You know, it was not like that. It was like, I love God. I love this labor. I love helping other people. I love people. I share the gospel. I talk about the Lord and it was like a magnet. And verse 22 says, many people in strong nations will seek the Lord of hosts. The idea here is that the nations may have physical strength, but in that moment, they recognize they don't have all of what they truly need. Why? Because they're, they're missing God. They're missing the most important part, verse 22. See, God's people, this is the funny part here. This text sounds like anti-evangelism. It really does if you read it. It's like this pastor David's getting up here and saying, let's model this text. You don't really need to evangelize. What I mean by that is the point here is God's people won't have to advertise for God because of this, their spirit-filled lives will be the advertisement. It's like 1 Peter talks about. I always thought 1 Peter was interesting because the idea was in 1 Peter, the people of God are going through really a lot of difficulty. They're going through persecution. And this is what Peter says to them. And when they ask you about the hope that lies within, why don't you tell them about Jesus? Peter's assuming that the people of God's lives are so distinct and they're so shining with Jesus's love from the inside out and the love is coming out and the endurance is coming out. He's assuming in that moment, all the nations, even those people that are persecuting you are gonna be like, what in the world is happening in that person's life? And that happens now, but it's happening. Pete and Jen were telling us so many stories about their house workers and they saw the joy in their lives. And through the persecution, like Pete and Jen are getting robbed and their apartment's getting cleaned out the first several years that they were there. And people are seeing the joy of Christ and they're being drawn. That's what this text is talking about. God's people here, he's saying, won't have to go out and share the gospel. Again, I'm not anti-evangelism. I think you should. I shared the gospel this past week with somebody, a homeless person on the side of the street. But the point here is they won't have to share the gospel because people will be urgently coming to them to get the gospel, to ask us why our lives and attitudes, our priorities are so different, like a magnet. The lost will want to know, how do I get in the favored crowd? Verse 21 of Zechariah 8. 
or in right standing with the Lord of hosts. And you know what our answer is not? Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Our answer is not do this list of good things. Our answer is it's all of grace. His jealous love that we don't deserve that is ultimately fully displayed in Christ dying on the cross for sinners, taking the wrath of God, bearing our judgment, raising again, defeating sin and death. Rely on his faithfulness. Look to his son to redeem you. Verse 23, as the section closes, it says this interesting phrase, in those days, 10, that's the number of completion here. It's, it's symbolic here. 10 Gentiles men or men from the nations of every tongue will urgently take hold of the robe of one Jew. There's like 10 Gentiles. They don't know God. They're pagan. They don't have God's presence with them. They don't know God's peace. They're going to urgently take home, take hold of one Jew's robe in faith. Why? Because God will be drawing the nations. And they want to be accepted in the covenant too. They want to be a part of God's people. They have heard this. What did they hear? Somebody down the street or over social media or whatever told me. What's distinct about you is God is with you. He's with you. That's what makes you distinct. You're not better than anyone else. God is with you and he's working in your life. And I want God to be with me. And that, even that desire to want that is the work of God in people's lives. They've seen God's love in our life. They've seen his power. They've seen his character on display and they want his presence too. And here's the good news. God is faithful. He is good on his promises. He's gonna get us to grandma's house, right? All of his promises find their yes and amen in Jesus. He bled and died for sinners. He's raised again. He's coming again. He's gonna make this world right. This means that we are more loved than we realized. This means in Christ only, God is not against you. He is for you. And he has promised he will sanctify you, even if it's painful. He's promised he's with you so you don't have to fear, even when you don't know what's the next step. Even though the mission scares you, you're like, that mission is so huge. Make disciples. Love God with all my heart and all my strength and love my neighbor as myself. And God says, I'm with you. I'm in you. I can, I'm doing that, okay? Give me the mission and I'll do it through you. See, it is truly through Jesus that all the families of the nations are ultimately blessed. I didn't make that up. That's Galatians 3, 6. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Christ would take the curse of our broken covenant. Sinners would receive the spirit by hearing and by faith in Jesus apart from works. God would justify the Gentiles by faith through the gospel of his beloved son and the truest fulfillment of in you shall all the nations be blessed takes place as he saves sinners. And then as he remakes them and transform their lives so that others will be drawn to him. And what was anticipated by the end of Zechariah 8.23 will be experienced in heaven for all of eternity. What I mean, what was anticipated? 10 Gentiles clinging to one robe of one Jew. What's anticipated in that? The nations that were coming at first like a trickle will come like a flood. Proof right here. Jesus came to save, right? 
He died, he raised, he poured out his spirit at Pentecost. Massive amounts of non-Jews are flocking to Jesus. And then in heaven, Revelation 5, 5 says, and when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding harp, a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on earth. Every nation tribe saved by the lamb who was slain and he's remaking them to be his priests, his truth speakers, his kindness givers, in this dark culture, we are becoming a mirror remade in Jesus Christ to shine out his truth, uncompromising, and his love uncompromisingly. This is the fulfillment that we're seeing as God is getting us to his fulfillment of all things. So what God is doing through his perfectly faithful son is using his imperfectly faithful people in every age for his glory. So I'm asking you, do you wanna be a part of that? (laughs) Do you want to come into that for the first time? Repent and believe the gospel. Trust Christ even before we have this supper that points to his work for you. Get in on that because we can't without it. Are you God's people already? Trust his faithfulness in you, not us, but Christ within us. Ask for that today, that fresh power. You're getting weary in the mission. What does that look like in your life right now? You're getting fearful in the mission. What does that look like for you? You're you're becoming very holed up and self-focused, and you are not focusing on being a blessing to the nations, the non-believers. What does that look like for you? And what does it look like for God to spin that on its head so that we'd be magnets? for him displaying his faithfulness.